Now, this morning, I think I um, overdid it a little bit yesterday, so um, got a little bit of a sore throat, but someone was kind enough to give me some throat lozenges yesterday, so we're trying one. We'll put it to the test this morning. If I go over an hour, you can blame them. <laughs> we're going to continue in our, our line of thought in day four of Genesis chapter one, so if you'll be turning there in your Bible... And I, I really, um, I shouldn't say amazed, I am um, really interested, I guess, in the way that the Lord has developed uh, this conference and what the speakers are uh, talking about, because neither Royce nor Arlen or I really knew what the other was going to be teaching on. But the way that the Lord has worked it, uh, though we are approaching and, and, Lord willing, going to a different conclusion with our thought, there's a lot of repetitive material that's coming through as those thoughts intersect throughout the Scripture. And so, um, you know, as a young man, I used to worry when you would follow other speakers and, oh, well, they're, they're teaching my, my message. What am I going to say? Get up and say the same thing. It's confirmation of the truth from the Word of God. It is confirmation that the Lord has, has a word from us that He wants to get our attention. And the, the, as we've said many, many times throughout this conference, the, the, the root of, of all biblical doctrine starts in the book of Genesis. And, um, you know, as we go back and forth in, in teaching things, Genesis is the root that we can go back to to establish those foundational truths. Now, we left off last week in kind of a summary going, um, going beginning in Genesis 1, 1 through day 4. You have a perfect creation. When I was in Bible school, we went through all of the different uh, theories relative to creation versus uh, uh, its destruction or continued work by God. Look, God did not create something in a state of chaos only to spend six days working on it trying to bring it to a state of perfection. It's counter to the character of God and there's no example anywhere else in scripture that he ever did such a thing. When he created the animals, they were perfect. When he created man, he was perfect. He didn't take six days to bring to an order what he had established in these six days. Now, is he leading to a goal? Yes. But the earth, when it was originally created in Genesis 1-1, was created in a perfect state. The following six days is not him improving upon what he didn't do um, when he said, let there be the heavens and the earth. Something else that we want to deal with uh, as we look and, and conclude this uh, uh, thought in these six days, how many of you have heard the expression that we need to go find Jesus? We need to go do something. Okay, um, there is a there is a theologic term that's 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 used for that. You may want to you may want to make it of a note. I think it's more of a southern theologic term, but it's called hogwash. <laughs> Creation does not seek after God. It does not actively do anything. Go back and look at those six days. It's quite simple. God spoke. The word moved upon that creation was the active agent in doing the work in creation 
I believe it was Francis Schaeffer that made the statement that we were actively passive. God spoke, creation simply responded. We weren't the active agents. Now, that being said, we move to day one. You have God calling light out of darkness, light and darkness being used in several different ways throughout the Old Testament and the New, indicates a a lack of understanding uh, as far as darkness, light being understanding or knowledge, uh, light being used of the Lord Jesus Christ, darkness being used of Satan and his realm, um, light being life, darkness being death. So it's used several different ways through the Scripture. One way we'll look at it as we continue on this morning is God calling life out of death. God, um, that life being the Lord Jesus Christ, also Him being the Word and the knowledge. So you can, you can tie those things together. Day two, we have the separation of the waters by the firmament. You can look at that at the beginning of the divisions within God's creation, separating spirit from soul. Day three, you have the separation of the waters, dry land coming forth. Now you have creation set in a tripartite or three-part state. You have the air, you have the water, you have the earth. And it's that point that God places the grass, the herbs, and the trees, and they begin to produce fruit that is acceptable or pleasing to God. God declared it to be good. Man, apart from a tripart state, is unable to produce acceptable fruit to God. Day four, we continue along that, that line again. God giving us a different picture of what's being done. You have now, in day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars being restored back in the cosmos, and they are um, placed in positions of rulership. In Genesis 1, this is really the first place you find the mention of authority. The greater light was, was brought about that it may rule the day. The lesser light was brought about that it may rule the darkness. Jesus alludes to this in the Gospels when he asked the questions, asked the question, Is there not 12 hours in a day? 12 being significant of the number of governmental completion. There's a rulership involved, a tie there. You can look at it in a sense of saying that the greater light being pictorial of the Lord Jesus Christ, the moon representative of Lucifer and the kingdom of darkness. Um, The the moon, as we, we mentioned earlier, the moon does not produce its own light. It receives its light from the sun. Its impact upon the earth or upon creation is limited by fixed laws from God. So it it is uh, locked into a specific pattern or specific boundaries. Now, why would we make this? Why would we make this statement with regarding or regarding the night? I want you to notice a phrase we alluded to. In case you weren't here, we'll, we'll mention it again. In six days, you have the statement consistently mentioned. In the evening and the morning, or respective of whatever day was taught, that darkness already existed. Now remember we said that God did not say that the darkness was good, merely that the light was good. The darkness was a product of judgment based on the introduction of sin into original creation by Lucifer. It was a state of judgment. God did not declare the darkness to be good. Now... You'll notice that that phrase, in the evening and the morning, we are currently in the evening. We are awaiting the morning. That phrase, in the evening and the morning, does not exist on the seventh day. Because that lesser light has been done away 
by that greater light. That diadem has been taken. The Lord Jesus Christ is wearing it. Let's move on down as we continue to see uh, truths relative to that, um, to that statement beginning in day 5. So if you'll look with me in day 5. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales or great fish and the living creatures that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas, and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And there's that phrase, in the evening and the morning was the fifth day. Now, I want you to keep that in your mind as we move on into day six. God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, do you know the Apostle Paul alluded to this, and we'll get to it shortly in Corinthians, but I want you to hold this in your, in your mind. Where did the fish and the fowl come from? The water. Where did the beast of the field come from? The earth. It's a different kind of flesh. Paul alludes to this in Corinthians. Like I said, we'll get there shortly. Wilson brought out an interesting point I heard as I was going through and studying this for myself, and it reminded me of when I was a boy, and my grandfather would... Um, he liked to hunt, fish, do all those things, that, you know, typical guy stuff. You ever, you ever see, well, I did with my grandfather, he would get fish, catfish, trout, whatever. Do you know how he usually preserved them? Put them in a Ziploc bag and fill that bag full of water and put it in the freezer. You ever tried that with a porterhouse? What happens? It doesn't hold up as well in, in ice as would, uh, as would a fowl or fish, right? Different type of flesh. The earth brought forth the beasts. The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea were brought forth by the water. Completely different kind of flesh. Now, move on into verse 26. That's, that was for free. Don't take the preserving advice from me. I'm not that great of a preserver. In verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. Oftentimes we pass over that and we say, well, the Lord just repeated himself for this for emphasis. The Holy Spirit, as it constructed this word, by the way, just for point of clarity, yes, we refer to this as the written word. You cannot separate the the written word from the living word. God will protect this word and its integrity. There, There is no error There are no contradictions. Um, This word is perfect and complete with regard to the message that the Lord is presenting to us. And so as we, we look at this usage, the Lord is making a point. We are made in the image and likeness of God, the image of the pre incarnate Christ. We have a body like the Lord was prepared to assume when He came on the earth. Before man was ever created, 
before the ages began, this plan was in God's mind. The Lord formed the body that the Lord Jesus Christ would assume. He prepared that sacrifice. We have that body. Secondly, when we deal uh, with his likeness, as Scott had mentioned earlier, we exist in a trichotomous state. As God exists, as we define him through his word, or he defines himself rather, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father being the will, obviously the Spirit being, um, being that, uh, that uh, active agent, and you have the physical manifestation of the Godhead and the, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man exists in those three parts. We have body, soul, and spirit. And they, in a right state, a restored state in perfection, should act um, in a unified manner of speaking. The spirit drives uh, the will. The will complies to the leading of the spirit and the, act, uh, the actual work itself being performed by the flesh. So that image and likeness is saying a little more than what we casually have a tendency to read over. Now, man was created in the image and likeness of God. There are five things that are stated here that he has to have dominion over, five being a number of grace. Man was created for the purpose to rule and to reign, and this by the grace and decree of Almighty God. First thing he's had to have dominion over is the fish of the sea, second over the fowl of the air, third over the cattle, fourth over all of the earth, and fifth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. Notice, um, Adam was placed in a position to be ruler, but he still had to go out and to subdue the land. Who was still in control? It was still the moon. It was still Lucifer, that fallen angel. Now, have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over everything that moveth upon the earth. Now, uh, you move on into uh, uh, verses 19 and 20, uh, dealing with this food, uh, that being the herb and the, and the tree yielding, um, yielding its fruit. Same thing with the fowl of the air. This poses an interesting dilemma for those who have... Uh, who've rejected going back and studying the Word, and they say, well, um, you know, back to Arlen's point last night with Noah and all the animals, well, what in the world would they have eaten? How could you have had the lion with the lamb or the predator with the prey? Well, they would have killed each other on that boat. What does God's Word say that they ate? Same thing man ate. They ate the herb. They ate the fruit. They ate those things that were there. You did not have the commission, the commission for... The eating of meat until Genesis chapter 9 following the flood. That's another tidbit. You can just put that in your pocket and carry it out with you. In Genesis chapter 2, we get into day 7. Day 7 uh, indicates thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on that day, God ended uh, his work. He blessed that day because he rested from his work. We're going to move on down for the sake of time into verse 10. Interestingly enough, again, this goes back into casual reading. We kind of pass over things and don't necessarily uh, 
um, give a lot of attention to them. We refer to the Garden of Eden. We think of it as Eden. Eden was a place. The garden was placed somewhere within Eden. And God actually identifies his redemptive plan beginning uh, in verse 10. Um, Here we find uh, that a river went out of Eden, Eden being defined as paradise or delight. Now, if you want to think about this in a sense, um, you could look at uh, Eden being pictorial of heaven. If if we we look at it in that way, it's a, a place of paradise, whatever. But there was a garden in that place of paradise that only two people existed. And those two people had open fellowship with the Lord. They had the right at that point to eat of the tree of life, to rule, to reign, to have dominion. Now, as we look at Eden, there was, there was a river that flowed through Eden. Beginning in verse 12, the name of that first uh, river is the Pison. Now, the Pison, if you look up that, the meaning of that word, really means to disperse, to multiply, and changing. It was, by extension, the mouth um, with, with regard to those uh, four heads or those four rivers. And it encompassed the whole land of Havilah. Now, the word Havilah means bringing forth. This is one of the places that are mentioned um, with regard to these four rivers, but this was one of the only places that had additional detail. It's the first, the first indicating primacy. What was actually said about Havilah? It says that there's gold there and that the gold of that land was good. What does gold speak of in the Scripture? When we go back and we look at the Ark of the Covenant, we look at the instruments of the temple, it speaks of divinity. The other thing that's mentioned is that there is Bedellum. Um, well, there's only one other reference in Scripture that I was able to find um, uh, really dealing with that. And you can, uh, we'll, we'll turn there if you'll hold your place and turn into the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, verse 7. And it's tied to the manna. And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof was the color of what? Bedellum. You can reference this over into Exodus 16.31. So, Bedellum was associated with the manna. The next thing that's listed there that occurred in Havilah was the onyx stone. What significance does the onyx stone have? Well, turn over in your Bibles... To Exodus 25, 7. Exodus 25, 7. And that's a small verse. Where was the onyx stone? 
It says in here it was in the, the, the priest's ephod and in the breastplate. Now, you can also look in Exodus 28 uh, as we deal with... Um, as we deal with um, uh, that, you don't, you don't need to turn there. We can go back to Genesis. Exodus 28 confirms the creation of the ephod and the breastplate, how things are to be done, the names of the 12 tribes engraved on those stones, um, and, and so on. I want you to hold this in your, your mind as we go through and we finish these rivers, and we'll try to tie everything in together for you. The name of the second river was the Gihon. Uh, it literally meant a great breaking forth of water. Um, it compassed the whole land of Ethiopia, literally Cush, meaning a black countenance or full of darkness. That's interesting. We just talked about the darkness uh, that occurred in uh, Genesis 1-2. We move on from that second river into the third river, Hadikiel, means a uh, rapid, swift, to flow swiftly, to be sharp, or an arrow. And it is that which goeth toward the land of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates, meaning of fruitfulness. Well, how in the world do you tie all this together? It's actually quite simple. When we go back and we, we look at this, um, at this as it occurs, there's a great multiplying. There's, there's something that's coming forth. What did the Lord come to do? He come to save that which was lost, not just one thing, but many. He come to redeem all creation under his authority, under his power. How is that going to happen? Well, we see the three things that's mentioned with Havilah. We find the gold, we find the bedellum, we find the onyx stone. It's pictorial of not only his divinity, but his word and his office as high priest. That brings us out of, or creates that breaking forth, out of that darkness. Then we are sharpened by the word that we may become fruitful. It's hard to believe all that's in there, isn't it? But it is. The Lord knew what was going to happen in Genesis. There's nothing that goes on in this text. There's nothing that we do or that we're going to do that takes the Lord by surprise. He is sovereign. He is in control. There is an ordered plan that is taking place, and it is being revealed before us. Now, if you'll go ahead and go on back into Genesis, and we'll pick up in Genesis 25. When we look at Adam as he was created, and Arlen very articulately brought this out uh, last night. Adam and Eve were in the garden. The word that's used here in verse 25 says that they were both naked, and the man, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And the word that is here has already been identified as indicating a, a being naked or partially naked. Part of dealing with translation is dealing with the context. And oftentimes after uh, we, we've heard, we've had questions come up, well, what about the inner garment? What about the inner garment? Well, typically when someone's asking about the inner garment, they're referring to the imputed righteousness of Christ that currently we have to have as an inner garment. That was not the inner garment that's referred to here. They were innocent. 
They had no sin. The garment that's covering them is not the imputed righteousness of Christ. As Arlen alluded to the other night, it was the glory of God. The old rabbis referred to it as them being covered in the Shekinah glory of God. They were enshrouded in light. Therefore, they were able to be naked, as it were, and not ashamed. They were missing garments of regality because they were to go forth from the garden. They were to subdue the earth and have dominion or possess dominion over it. In essence, they were to replace Lucifer and those angels. Now, as we move on down into Genesis 3, when we get to verse 10, an interesting side note here is we're dealing in Genesis and, the, and Satan appears um, uh, in that serpent. By the way, when you go into the Revelation and you, you find the dragon, that word dragon there can also be translated as serpent. When we talk about Eve being deceived... Eve did three things in that temptation. She added to, she took away, and she changed the Word of God. And I'm not going to tell you what it was. You can go back and, and look at it for yourself. But those three things she did to Scripture. By the way, those are two things that we're told that we're not to do in the book of the Revelation. If we add to the Word or if we take away, there's a curse involved in that. Now, we move on down into verse 10. We find that sin has now been reintroduced into a restored creation by Eve as well as by Adam. And there's a statement that's, that's made here also. And by the way, uh, back to a point that I had made earlier with creation seeking after God, it's further confirmed here in verse 10. God comes down to have fellowship with Adam and Eve after sin is reintroduced. Where is, where is Adam and Eve? They're not running to the Lord to fellowship with Him at that point. They are hiding from Him. I find it interesting all those individuals that say they found the Lord or they were looking for the Lord. Well, they must be a better person than Adam. Now, as we move forward with that word of thought, there is a completely different word in the Hebrew used there for nakedness, and it indicates a complete nakedness. Now, at this point, with the introduction of sin, there is a need for that inner garment as we currently understand it, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ, that's why the Lord covers them with the animals. Those animals, if any of you are involved in PETA, hold on. I had a young lady that got really mad with me. She had one of those bumper stickers about hating individuals with fur. I asked the young lady, and I said, Ma'am, who do you think made the first coat ever in history? Well, I don't know. Well, God did. For that imputed righteousness to occur... An animal that was there had to give its life. Blood had to be shed to cover or atone, if you will, those sins. For God to look over those sins and restore them back into a place of fellowship. God clothed them. Now, they attempted to do this themselves with an apron of fig leaves. But man cannot produce works in a fallen state, as we've already seen prior to day three, creation cannot produce acceptable works unless they exist in a proper state. God rejected Adam's work and Eve's work and did that himself, clothed them himself with the shedding of blood. Now, let's move on uh, with regard to that nakedness. 
uh, we we know the we know this um, this story quite well. The Lord asks who told him uh, about the nakedness and so on and so forth. We get down into verses fourteen and fifteen. We begin to deal with the judgment of God, and one of the things that we find out within this chapter is the judgment occurs in threes. Uh, the first thing that is said with regard to the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Then upon thy belly thou shalt go. Dust shall they eat all the days of their life, a threefold judgment on that serpent. We find a similar thing with regard to Satan. There will be an enmity between him and the woman. By the way, though we're looking at that woman as being Eve, it's also pictorial of the woman that we see out in the Revelation, that woman that will give birth to the man-child. And that man-child is not the Lord Jesus Christ. That man-child has already been produced 2,000 years back in the past. This is what is being seen uh, by John in the Lord's day dealing with that tribulation. That man-child is the 144,000 that will go forth. And proclaim the gospel. Um, so there's an enmity between the serpent and the woman. There'll now be also an enmity between her seed and its seed. You know, it's interesting that we again that we often overlook this, but uh, there's a there's a thing that you need to be aware of. Arlen's touched on it before with regard to the parables. Was the woman's seed literal? Sure, it was. That's a unique occurrence in the scripture, by the way. Typically, it's the seed of the man, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. But in this instance, it's the seed of the woman. Why is that? There was no earthly father. So, do you believe in the virgin birth? If you believe in the virgin birth, therefore, this woman's seed must be literal. Right? Now, you can't have one thing within this idea being figurative and the other being literal. They're either both literal or they're both figurative. If the woman's seed was literal, producing the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan, must also be literal. The Antichrist will be another Nephilim. He will be the literal offspring of Satan and some woman. Just like you saw in Genesis, the word that's used there with regard to wives and we love to tell that story and say it was Shem. Well, it had nothing to do with Shem. You have believers marrying unbelievers today, and you don't see monstrosities like Goliath running around because of it. That's just, again, that's theological hogwash. These were angels, and they cohabitated. They produced what would be considered a hybrid that should, by natural law as we understand it, be sterile. But for whatever reason, within spiritual law superseding natural, they were able to continue to procreate and produce large cities. It will happen again. Now, you, well, you can see that in the book of Daniel dealing with the toes. We talk about that as being governments. Ten toes of clay, ten toes of iron. There will be five of those kings, more than likely that will be human. In my opinion, the five that are iron will be those that are of the Nephilim. You see that kind of tied in, I want to say, into Isaiah 24, what is 11, 24. Other lords, other Adonai, have ruled over us. Um, it's not really Adonai, it's Adonai. Well, it's, uh, it's the same noun with a different ending. It's lords or masters, not denoting necessarily the Lord. Other lords have ruled over us, but they are not, for they are dead. And you have that term there uh, with regard to Raphaim. Now... By the way, that contextual setting is dealing with the tribulation. 
So as we as we deal with this seed, you have the seed or the offspring of Satan. Now there's this there's this uh, enmity between the Lord Jesus Christ and this Antichrist, and we know how that ends. Then we go on. Um, there's a prophecy related to that in the third aspect of that judgment. It shall or he shall literally um, bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Then we move on into the woman in verse 16. And to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in thy conception, and sorrow shalt thou bring forth. The second, thy desire shall be unto thy husband. And third, he shall rule over thee. Unto the man, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee not, saying that thou shalt not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And third, in the sweat of thy face shalt eat, thou eat thy bread until thou return into the ground. Now what I find interesting is you have four individuals judged here, three aspects of judgment upon each of those four. Do you know that we have done our dead level best to try to negate each of those judgments? God's answer to the woman... You're going to multiply. Um, you're going to multiply in, in thy sorrow and in, in conception. In other words, there's going to be more pain involved with regard to that conception. What's the modern world's answer to that? Well, we'll just we'll just abort them. Um, goes on to say, "Thy desire to be to thy husband." Well, they don't necessarily desire husbands anymore. You have men desiring men, women desiring women. Again, bringing chaos or trying to, to undo that decree of the Lord. Um, thy husband shall rule over thee. Our, our answer to that is feminism. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're any more feminine. They look more like or try to behave more like men than they do women. Angel, go ahead and go outside and get the star car started bringing up front. It's the truth. You have women trying to subjugate the head, which God is the one that established. We move on to man. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. We're constantly working, trying to hide the effects of that curse, to deny the effects of that curse. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee. In the sweat of thy face shall thy eat bread. Paul deals with that when he says if a man, in Second Thessalonians, if a man wouldn't work, a man wouldn't eat. What does the man come up with to counter that doctrine? We come out with, with hands out. We don't want him to work. We just want you to sit there and have all the idle time in the world to engage in everything else that you shouldn't be into. Uh, anyway, that, that's all side. Now, verse 21 is where we get into that issue where the Lord takes them out of the garden and he closed them. Now, I want to take you to another place. The Lord then moves Adam and Eve outside of the garden. And in the east of that garden, you can go back and look at the significance of the direction east. Uh, we won't take the time to do that this morning. But the Lord places something there as he puts man out of the garden. What does he put there? He puts cherubim there. He puts angels there. And it says that there's this great sword, and everybody talks about, well, it's lightning, it's, it's such and such. Let me give you a different thought. Keep that in mind regarding that entranceway back into Eden, or the Garden of Eden, back into the place where they would have right to the tree of life. Remember, this is basically 
a doorway. This is a portal. This is an entry back into the garden, back into fellowship, as it were, back into the, to the, to the tree of life. What was that sword that were between those two cherubim? Turn in your Bibles to Psalms 99, verse 1. We won't go through that whole chapter, but we'll just look at a few references here and provide you maybe with a different thought. Psalm 99, verse 1. I think that cough drop's working pretty well, don't you? Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth where? Between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. You can look over into Exodus 25, verses 18 through 22. And here we have the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. We have the creation of the mercy seat. And the instructions that are provided to Moses in verse 18 of Exodus 25. Thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them. In the two ends thereof of the mercy seat. Thou shalt make one cherub on one end and the other cherub on the other end. Uh, Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim um, on the two ends thereof. Verse 20. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat. With their wings and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I have given thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim. You can also look uh, another reference to Exodus 26:34, Leviticus 16:1 through 2, and uh, Numbers chapter 7. So what are you saying? Is it possible that that sword that's defined as turning every direction could be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ between the cherubim? Well, why would that be the case? Well, turn over into the Gospel of John chapter 10. And we'll look in two verses of that same chapter, verses 7 and 9. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. And then Jesus said unto them, Again, verily, verily, I say unto you. What does he declare himself to be here? I am the door of the sheep. In verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Well, again, what does this mean? Well, when the Lord closes a door, no man can open it. When the Lord opens a door, no man can close it. 
The Lord closed that door as he put Adam and Eve out of that garden for a specific reason. And man could not go back in. When he decides to open that door, man will once again be able to enter in, or those that are found worthy will be able to enter into that garden and have fellowship with the Lord once again and have access to the tree of life. When we go back in and we look in New Jerusalem, there's a garden in there. And in that garden, there'll be a tree of life. And when you look back in history, you find oftentimes when kings had these tremendous palaces, like Nebuchadnezzar, within that palace, there was a garden. And that garden was where the king would retire to fellowship, um, to relax, and have intimacy with his family apart from his subjects. What do we think that that garden is going to be like in that coming day? And there's only one door whereby we may pass through. And he is the only one that can grant access. So let's tie all of this kind of in together as we've dealt with all these various verses. And I've chased rabbits a little bit to give you some sidebars. Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll begin in, verses, in verse 35. We have dealt with the out-resurrection or literally the standing up out from among the dead ones in Philippians 3. We've, we've dealt with other subjects as Arlen has taught on and as well as Royce dealing with, uh, dealing with the rapture and those, those coming events. And still there seems to be some ambiguity with regard to resurrections and, and the way the bodies are going to look. By the way, just for the point of clarity, that first resurrection that's mentioned in Re, I believe around... Um, Revelation chapter 20, I'll just say this to make, and may try to make it perfectly clear. That first resurrection has absolutely nothing to do with the church contextually. The rapture of the resurrection pertaining to the church that we're seeing in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 occurs before that time. That first resurrection in the revelation is what Mary and Martha were looking for with Lazarus. That's what Abraham was looking for. Um, that was a resurrection going into the millennial reign of those that were that were blessed, those that were found worthy going into the millennial reign. Second resurrection in their mind was that which would occur at the end of the millennium, going to the great white judgment throne, and then on to the ages upon ages. The dispensation relative to the church is unique. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35, but some men or some people will say, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? And sadly to say, this even circulates around, even among kingdom believers, and it's due to a lack of knowledge of the Word of God. And we expect the Apostle Paul with those questions, that's a smart question. That's a great theologic premise. To, let's build on that. That's not what the Apostle Paul says. Look what he says in verse 36. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him. This body that you see as it is sown in the ground or is as it is transformed at the sound of that trumpet will be different. Now he goes on 
in verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of fishes, another flesh of birds. Paul is taking us back into the book of Genesis. What brought forth the fish and the fowl? It was the water. What brought forth the beast of the field? It was the earth. There is a different type of flesh. Paul is speaking to us about terrestrial things here. But as he moves on into verse 40, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. By the way, the word that's used here for another is heteros, not alos. The difference between those two is alos is one or another of the same kind. Heteros implies another of a different kind. When the angels went after strange flesh, the word that's used there is heteros. Now as we move on, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, flesh, blood, and bone. It is raised a spiritual body. That which presently imparts life to us, that keeps us going, is the blood. And in Genesis 9, the life is in the blood. We're forbidden to eat the blood. However, when we are brought about in that spiritual body, the animating property of that spirit or that body seems to be the spirit. When the Lord was resurrected and he told his disciples to examine him, to handle him, he said he was flesh and bone. Now, Paul goes on to say there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. So, it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam is made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not which was first, or uh, sorry, that was not first which was spiritual, but that which is natural. Afterwards, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. As is the heavenly, such are uh, they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, how does this all fit together? Well, the out-resurrection in Philippians 3 is an event that will occur at the judgment seat of Christ. It will be a standing up out from among those who have lost their soul or lost their life at the judgment seat of Christ. It will be those individuals that will be clothed once again, not only with the glory of God, but with garments of regality. This glorified body premise that we have, that we're going to be raised up in this body that's about like a spotlight for everybody to see all this great glory, that's not what you're going to see. Let me ask you a question. When we, when we have in our mind this glorified body and uh, all this stuff, how many times did the Lord appear as a great and blinding light? to his followers at his resurrection. There's only two instances of the Lord appearing in glory. One preceded his death. It was the Mount of Transfiguration, 
when he appeared in glory with Peter, James, and John. The next time we see him appearing in this bright, radiant light is at the conversion of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Every other time he appeared to his disciples, he appeared in a spiritual body, but apart from that radiant light. So, what was that radiant light? Was it a glorified body? No, it was a spiritual body. And when he appeared in his glory, it was as a raiment that was placed on him, equivalent to Joseph's coat of many colors. It was a sign of the Father's love and his authority over his brethren. So get some of that other stuff that's confusing, that excess baggage. Look to see what the scripture has to say about it. With regard to these sons who stand up in that out-resurrection from among the dead ones, there'll be varying degrees of glory as there's varying degrees of glory within the heavenly bodies. And that will be based upon their faithfulness as God gives them a body that is pleasing to Him. Now you say, well, how, how is that? Look, there, are, there is a hierarchy of angels in the heavenlies. Lucifer being one of those, what we would, we would typically refer to as an archangel. He is an angel of high position within the heavenlies, identified as a messianic angel. There are angels of varying degrees of authority and glory that he rules over. As it has already been mentioned, those are the crowns that those who are deemed worthy will at one point wear. With those varying degrees of authority, there are varying degrees of glory. The glory that will be that will cover those individuals will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not an issue that you're, you're resurrected in that body that's radiant and covered in light. That's something that will occur. He will change the body of our humiliation, likened to the body of His glory. But it is that covering that is given at the goodwill and the pleasure of our Father after being judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not something that will be experienced by every believer. Now, I don't expect you to take my word for it. As I told you before, I'd be a little insulted if you did. Go back and study it out for yourself. I have nothing against books. But any book that's out there on the shelf, and you, you can... You can attest to this, Lewis. I'm not trying to hurt you. <laughs> Those books are leisure reading. This book is the one that you had better know because it is this book that acts upon creation as we've already seen in the first chapter. It is this book and this book alone that will transform you and allow you to be clothed in that glory to come. And it's our choice, like Schaefer said, Will we be willingly passive in the sense that we allow the Holy Spirit to have his perfect and complete work in us, to bring us to a place of sonship that we may one day be adorned in those robes of light as the Shekinah glory of God covers us once again? Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to study with you this morning. And it's, uh, it's fantastic to see you all. We've really enjoyed the time that we've had with you. And uh, we also want to thank you for your prayers for us. Thank you.